one of the things I like to do is to kind of connect when I speak to what God has been saying to the body as a whole. And our senior pastor has been speaking to us about the Church of St. Anna. Now, we're not planning to become a Catholic church, uh, but I do believe that Anna and the, the, the messages that Pastor Greg, uh, Greg Boyd has been sharing with us has uh, been answering a question for us. What kind of people does God want us to be here at Woodland Hills Church? What kind of people does God want us to be here at Woodland Hills Church? And Anna is a woman who uh, prayed and, and, and was, we learn about in Luke 2. Now, I'm not going to read this passage to you again because we've had it read to us a few times over the last few weeks. I'm just going to tell you a little bit about Anna. She was very old, probably in her 90s or something like that. We're not real sure how old she was, but she was very old, and she had only been married for seven years, and after her husband had died, she spent the rest of her life praying. She prayed and fasted, seeking and waiting for the redemption of Israel, the Bible tells us. What exactly is the redemption of Israel? At that time, the, the land of Israel was, full of, uh, was occupied by the Romans, and the Roman government was in control of the land of Israel, and she was praying that, the, the, that God would come and drive out the enemies of Israel. That once again, that the glory of God would be restored to the people of Israel. That the temple would be full of His glory and His presence. Because it was, no, it was not like that at that time. She was waiting, hopeful, that God would return and fulfill His promises. She longed for the day when the glory of God would return and the people of God would be the people of God again. And I think today we're in a little bit of that same place where we're longing and waiting for God to, God's glory to be restored to His people, God's glory to be restored to His church, that we might be that kind of church again. Anna was the type of person who waited and longed for that in, 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 in a way that I used to wait and long for Christmas morning. You know, there's a difference between hopeful expectation and wishful dreaming. Hopeful expectation says, I know what's going to happen and I'm going to pray into it. Wishful dreaming sits back and goes, I think it can happen. I think it can happen. Maybe it can happen. I really wish it would happen. She had hopeful expectation. Now, I had hopeful expectation in, my, in the case uh, of Christmas because once... I was rummaging probably in a place where I shouldn't be in my mother's desk. Now, don't you tell her this when she comes in a few weeks. <laughs> and I found this notebook, and I was flipping through this notebook, and I saw at the top of the list, Scott, Christmas in the year, and a list. I knew what I was getting. Wishful dreaming says, Mom, I want this stuff. Will you please get it for me? Hopeful expectation says, I saw the list. I know what I'm getting. Now, I still was anxious to get it. I still couldn't wait for Christmas morning, but I knew it. And the, Anna knew the promises of God. She knew what God had said. And she said, I'm going to pray into this, and I'm going to look forward to the day that God delivers the people of Israel. We today have the opportunity to live in hopeful expectation 
that God is coming, that God is setting us free, that God is doing a miraculous work in our midst, that God is still God in this world. I want us to all stand, and we're going to just hold hands together across this room. And I want us to pray that God will open up our hearts, that we might have that hopeful expectation. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come this morning and do the work that only you can do. That we might learn what it means to live a life of hopeful expectation. That you are still the faithful God. You are so faithful. You are still the the promise-fulfilling God that has come to deliver us, that has come to save us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 A little over 50 years ago, in Southern California, there's a phenomenon that occurred that has shaped the rest of our lives. There were two brothers. They owned a restaurant. This was one of those car hop restaurants with girls on, well, they didn't have rollerblades back then. They had roller skates. For the younger crowd, you don't know what those are, but, you know, if you go look at old movies, you can see what roller skates are. And they, they would serve full meals on plates and trays, and they, these plates were breakable plates. They didn't, they didn't have paper. I don't know when paper plates were invented, but um, they, they complained about the difficulty of serving these complicated meals on breakable plates and on roller skates and lots of plates would be broken and the expense of it was kind of high. And so these two brothers started innovating and thinking outside the box and they decided to say, we're going to do away with the complicated meals. We're going to simplify the menu. We're only going to serve things like hot dogs and hamburgers and french fries and very simple things, and we're not going to, they fired all their car hops and said, no more deliveries to the car like that. We're going to make people come in, order, and they sit down or they can go, and and it'll be a lot cheaper that way. And we're going to serve it in very simple format. No longer, they got rid of all of their breakable plates and, and made it so simple that they could get people in and out very quickly. This is known as the fast food industry. The brothers were the McDonald's brothers. And Ray Kroc came along and said, why in the world do you have, why why in the world have I sold you four milkshake mixers when everybody else just has one? You must be doing something incredible. Let's take this around the nation. And the McDonald's brothers were like, we're rich enough. We're making over $100,000 a year, a year, and we're the richest people in San Bernardino, or one of the richest, and they didn't have any desire to take it across the nation, but Ray Kroc did. So we learn about this, in, uh, this phenomenon in a book called Fast Food Nation, and we can see how this phenomenon has, has infiltrated our entire lives, how Ray Kroc and others, and Wendy's, and Taco Bell, and all these other types of fast food restaurants have infiltrated our lives. In fact, 25% of the people in this room, statistics tell us, will eat at a fast food restaurant today. Now, I would venture the guess that that's a nationwide statistic, and because there are more fast food restaurants in large cities, that it's a little higher 
in larger cities than 25%. Now, I'm not knocking this. I had a Wendy's hamburger last night after I preached, so I was thankful for that. Uh, but I just want to use this as an, an, an analogy, a metaphor to talk about something that has infiltrated our lives. McDonald's had a, has a mantra or a philosophy of doing business. It's called the quality, service, cleanliness, and value philosophy. Quality, it could mean have it my way. Service, immediate gratification. I mean, you get this food quickly. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to, it's, it, as soon as you order it, it's out there in a few minutes. In fact, one of the frustrating things I find with, if you're a fast food connoisseur like uh, I have become with two small children and chicken nuggets, is when they ask you to pull forward and wait for the meal, that's a little frustrating. I get a little frustrated. I'm like, not only do I have to wait on the meal, it's also going to be too hot to eat. So I have to wait a few more minutes to let it cool down. Isn't that ridiculous? It is, but uh, I, what can I say? I'm a product of my generation. Cleanliness. It looks good on the outside. Now, we won't talk about what that book says is inside the food. Uh, value. Little investment is required. I mean, this was the, when, when the McDonald's brothers created this or innovated this way of doing food, they said it was the first time that poor farmers or in, uh, fat, factory workers or other regular people could take their entire family to a restaurant and feed them without it costing them an arm and a leg. So little value is required. Now, again, I'm not knocking this. There are probably a lot of people in this room who have work at fast food restaurants or uh, own them. I'm just using this as a metaphor uh, because it is something that in, this way of eating, I think, has become a way of life that has become a way of doing God. In fact, it's such a worldwide phenomenon. When I was in Russia in 1993, um, they just opened the McDonald's in Moscow. And it was snowing because it was the end of December. I mean, it was snowing. Oh, yeah, you know what snow looks like here. In Texas, you have to explain that to people. Um, but it was snowing, and the line to get into the McDonald's was four hours long. I was like, wait a second. Your food is... I mean, oh, no, we won't talk about that. I couldn't get it, but, the, you know, it was... a. An American phenomenon that everyone wanted to experience, and it was around the Christmas time, and they, the line was all, they said the line was almost always four hours long. I think the symbol of the uh, fast food nation that this book um, talks about is illustrated with the drive through lane. Not only have we made food easy to get and quick to get, but we make it easier for people. By, you don't even have to get out of the car. You just order it a sign and drive up and get your food and go on. It's pre-packaged in a box and nice in a nicely packaged in a bag. You know, quite honestly, I'm a little bit thankful for this because I've got two kids under three, and it really makes life a little bit easier. But I don't know about how that way of living, if we are a drive-through nation, if that way of life has possibly infiltrated the way we pray. Have you ever thought about having drive-through prayers and what that might look like? Is it possible that the way we eat shapes the way we pray? 
And I know it, the way we pray shapes the kind of people we are. This is a little bit different than the way Anna prayed. Anna understood the art of waiting, that hopeful expectation. She didn't expect God to just come down and magically solve all the problems of the world. She knew the promises of God were true, and therefore she was able to wait on God's timing, on God's ways, and enter into his life and his rhythms, not get in too big of a hurry. I want you to imagine pulling up to a drive through line and looking at the sign, and you look up and it says, God's Restaurant. And that menu is full of stuff from God. You laugh because I think sometimes we pray a little bit like this. And you, see, you hear this voice coming out <laughs> and says, I think the voice sounds a little bit like James Earl Jones' voice. How can I help you today? You say, well, God, you know, uh, I, I'm not feeling so well over the last couple of weeks. And, you know, I know I've asked you two or three times, but I really need healing. I, I mean, this flu stuff is, is for the birds. And, you know, uh, my uncle, he's, he's really had a stroke. And, oh. <laughs> That's bad. I didn't mean to say that. I did not mean to say that. But it is, I don't like this flu, in, in other words. <laughs> Will you heal me? Let's get back to the analogy. And you go on down your list and you say, you know, uh, my, my daughter-in-law, you know, has is, is, is just had a baby and they're go she's going through postpartum depression. Will you heal her? Because and, and, she's, she's really struggling with some emotional things right now. Will you, will you deal with that? And, and, you know, my husband and I are, are really struggling through financial stuff. And will you please, you know, we don't know if we can, if we can uh, really get through this next month because, you know, we just had taxes and we just had a car accident. And, you know, please restore our finances. And then, you know, at work, I've got somebody at work. I'm my boss. You know, God, will you, you need to work out something there. He's a little uh, controlling. We need some relational work there. Will you show, would you do something? And then, there, of course, there's the God's will decision. And, God, we need to know your will about when we should retire. Or if you're younger, we need to know your will about what kind of job we need to have. We know, need to know about, should I quit and go to this job? Or should I start this job? Or should I buy this house? Or should I not buy that house? Or should we buy this car or not buy that car? The list goes on and on and on. And say, okay, God, I think that about covers it. And uh, how much is that going to cost me? No, that, that's not too bad. Uh, oh, oh, by the way, when I pull forward, will the, the answers and your direction be ready when I get to the window? Because, you know, I've got some appointments to get to to pick up the kids or I've got to get back to work or you know I don't have long for this this is pretty quick right quality service cleanliness and value that's the mantra that often infiltrates how we pray quality we ask for God to do it my way service we want answers quickly cleanliness 
We look like we're doing the right thing. We're praying, right? We're praying. We've been told to pray. And I'm going to the place where we're supposed to pray. And value. You know, I don't have too much to give you, God. But is this going to cost me much? You know, if you were to live on a diet of supersize, like the movie Supersize Me demonstrated, where this man ate supersized meals three times a day for a month, and he gained a lot of weight. And his heart cholesterol went out the, the roof and other things. And um, his, on the website, uh, Supersize Me website, it says if you eat a supersize, drink a supersized Coke, eat supersized fries, and eat a Big Mac, you will need to walk seven hours straight to burn it off. So instead of working, you just, you just walk. Now, if you were to eat this three times a day for a while and get up in the morning and look yourself in the mirror and go, why do I look like this? What's going on with my body? I don't feel good. I, I don't know what's going on here. Why aren't I losing weight? I'm, and the summer's coming up and I want to go to the beach or whatever. And, and this is not working. We can say, like, God, help me lose weight. Isn't that sometimes the way we do God and say, you know, God, I've, I've been praying, and why aren't you answering my prayers? We treat him as a drive through God. It's hard to have a legitimate complaint about unanswered prayers when we're just driving through, and we're not really relating to God. We're relating to a voice that we think is God. I lived in Germany for a few months uh, in, in 1990. I was a youth pastor in a church in Heidelberg. And the uh, um, first day I was at the church, I was still going through jet lag, and I'd just gotten there the evening before. I wasn't fully unpacked, and I was supposed to preach on Sunday night, but went to the Sunday morning service, and somebody asked me out to lunch. I thought, well, I need to go have lunch with this person. I mean, I uh, need to build relationships and those, do those kinds of things. So I'll go to lunch with them a couple hours. That'll be okay. I can come back and get ready for my sermon and, and get unpacked and figure out what I'm going to wear tonight and all that kind of stuff. And I, we were driving toward the restaurant. I said, well, what are the plans for this afternoon? How are we going to do this? And when do you think I can be back? And they said, well, you can probably get you back by 5.30, 6 o'clock. How long does lunch last here? And they're like, oh, quite a while sometimes. And the restaurant we're going to, it'll probably last three or four hours. I'm like, what? I mean, I didn't respond that way, but in my mind I did. I was like, I, I just was like, I can't. How? How can anybody eat that long? There's work to do. Well, they got me back a little bit earlier. I think it was 4, 4.30. Um, because I did, I did have the excuse of i got to preach tonight. Um, but, you know, I think this way of eating can illustrate for us a different way of relating to God. Now, I'm not saying Germans pray better than we do. I don't necessarily think that. I'm using these as analogies. And I'm not blaming the fast food industry for the way we pray. I'm just saying... You know, these are analogies to, to say, 
We treat God like a fast food prayer God. But I'm thinking he wants to invite us to sit with him. And I think he wants us to enjoy multiple courses with him. And I want to use this analogy of sharing a meal with Jesus. And look at a passage in Isaiah chapter 40. As a window into a way of relating to Jesus. Now these verses are not a direct prayer or anything like that. They're really talking about an interaction that God has with the people of Israel and how they're relating to one another. In chapter 40, verses verses 27 through 31, it says in verse 27, Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He will not grow weary or tired, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. I believe these scriptures here point to a way of eating with Jesus. A three-course meal where you can sit down with Jesus and see what he has for you. An alternative to drive-through spirituality. The first course I entitle, Center Your Soul. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to put on your imagination cap and imagine this huge restaurant, biggest restaurant you could possibly imagine, four or five floors of uh, of tables, servants going everywhere, kitchens, multiple kitchens. And you walk into the first floor and you see the hostess there and you say, I'm meeting someone, I'm a few minutes late and I always know he's on time. So he's somewhere here and they say, well, what does he look like? Well, I can't really tell you what he's going to look like today. But I'll know him when I see him. So I, I, can I, is it all right if I just walk through the restaurant and, and find him? And they said, yes, that's fine. And so you start venturing throughout the restaurant. And you, you look on the first floor and he's not there. And then the second floor and he's not there. You even look in the bar and he's not there. Every floor you go up and down, he's not there. And you're like, well, should I go in the restroom? And it, finally you go back to the first floor and you start passing the people you looked at the first time. And you start getting embarrassed. You can't find Jesus. Where is he? Finally, you get tired. And you sit down at a table that's empty. And you just say, you know, Lord, in your mind, you're saying, I'm frustrated. I'm tired. I I need to tell him some things. I need to know what's going. I need to know what's going on in my life. And, you know, I'm even a little angry at what's going on in my life. And possibly I'm even a little angry at God. And you look up, and he's sitting across the table from you. I found that the thing that hinders my prayer life the most is my inability to be honest with God. I think sometimes I get in this mindset that when I pray, I've got to be pious. Or I have to use different words. Have you ever been in a a prayer time when somebody talks differently when they talk to God? 
They use words like thee and thou or thus and so-and-so and whatever. And I'm like, quit talking like that. You're weirding me out. In Isaiah, he says, he quotes God saying, Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? God is not chastising Israel for being honest. He's saying, why do you feel this way? I want to understand because it's, mis it's misguided. He's not saying don't have emotions, don't have feelings. He, said he, he says, I want you to express what you feel to me. Get it out there on the table. Put it down. I find that I'm, when I'm dishonest with God, I feel like I have to chase him. When I get honest with God, I realize he's been chasing me the entire time. He's right there beside me. And he said, I'll, I'll reveal myself to, self to you, but you have to slow down enough to see what's going on in your own heart. And you cannot do that through a drive through prayer life. We cannot hurry our way through this meal. It's something we must experience with him in being honest. Someone a few years ago uh, Early in my walk with Jesus, a mentor said to me, God can handle your honesty. Now, I was angry. I was angry at some people in my life and some close family members and such. And I was like, whether or not it was justified didn't matter. It's what I felt. And she said, get honest with God and tell him how you feel and quit telling everybody else. I was like, you, you mean I can really do that? What if I'm angry at him? That's what I was really scared at. Some of you here are angry with God. Tell him. He can handle it. Some of you are here are disappointed with your life and the hand you've been given. Tell him. He can handle it. Some of you here are frustrated with situations and opportunities that you haven't had tell him he can handle it some of you here are scared with what's going on in your life tell him he can handle it now this honesty doesn't have to be ominous or huge some of, for some of you in this room it is big stuff you need to be honest with God about some of us it's not so big I was going for a walk this week around a, a lake and I was feeling a little heavy at heart, and I was just kind of like, what's going on? I don't understand, and I was praying, well, God, what did I do wrong? What's this? What's that? And then I stopped, and I, I thought, and I realized, you know, I, I just said, God, I've been working on this. I've been working on a book for four years. It's a little bit long, but anyway, it usually doesn't take that long. But I was like, God, I'm scared to be done with this. Now, it's not a big deal. But I, for an hour, walked around trying to pray. And as soon as I realized what was going on in my heart, immediately I sensed the presence of God. Immediately he was there. Some of you here are overjoyed with God and what he's done for you and how your life is going. I want to say to you, tell him. Tell him. Some of you are deeply satisfied and at peace. Tell him. Tell him. 
But you know, you cannot stay in the state of your emotions. If you stay in the state of your emotions, you'll become a, ta- a dog chasing its tail. You'll become, enter into this spiral going down and down and down and down and down, further and further into yourself. We need something that's going to call us out of ourselves. In fact, in verse 28, God says, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. The people of Israel needed something to get them off their emotions, and you and I need something to get us off of our emotions. Sometimes I'll use Psalm 23 to recenter myself, center my soul on the Lord, and I'll say, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, and immediately peace will come because I've focused my mind on God. You might say, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed or blessed be your name. I'm going to praise you and you just start worshiping the Lord. And again, it refocuses you upon God. Something I often use is a phrase, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. And I'll just repeat that a few times and my soul will center on Jesus. Or you can just enter into worship and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Again, you're getting your eyes off of yourself and onto the one who has the ability to do something because you and I don't. So that's the salad or the soup. Just getting you into the relationship with Jesus, the first course. The second course I call Eat the Word. Ezekiel 3, 1 to 3, and then we're going to read this from the message translation. Ezekiel says about God, God said to him, Son of man, eat what you see. Eat this book. Then go and speak to the family of Israel. As I opened my mouth, he gave me the scroll to eat, saying, Son of man, eat this book that I am giving you. Make a full meal of it. So I ate it. It tasted so good, just like honey. You know, the Bible isn't meant to just read. It's meant to ingest, to take in ourselves, to reshape us from the inside out. Many times I have approached the Bible as something that I objectify and I try to understand and make myself become. I try to do the Bible and I try to work it up. And he, the, God instructs us to eat the word, take it in of ourselves so that it becomes us. The word comes out of me because what is in you will come out of you. It will, it will shape you, it will make you, it will change you from the inside out. I have a friend in Houston who loves coffee. I mean, loves coffee so much he spent $1,000 on a coffee maker. I can't imagine that. But he did. And he said since he got this coffee maker, his coffee is so good, he wakes up first thing in the morning and will, he will drink three or four cups before he even goes to work. Then all day at work he'll drink coffee. Then when he gets home, he puts decaf in and starts drinking coffee as soon as he gets home and drinks it all night long. I mean, he smells like coffee. (laughs) He is coffee. (laughs) This, this, the what we take in us will come out of us. It will, it will cause us to, to live a certain way, to be a certain way, to do a certain thing. You know, if, if you're sitting there tonight and, and you're saying, or to this morning, and you're saying, you know, I want to rid myself of anger. And anger is what's coming out of you. Anger is what's been woven into your life. Then take up a diet of the Word of God. 
And if you want to become a servant, and you think, you, you, think, you know, people have told me all my life, I'm just a selfish old booger. Then sit down at the table with the truth of Jesus Christ. If you desire peace, chew on these timeless words of life. Now, will this be a quick change? No. These patterns of living, this drive-through way of life, this anger that's in our world, the frustration that's in our world has been woven into the life of Americans over generations. And it's been woven into the warfare of this world for, for thousands of years. Satan has woven this stuff into our lives slowly. And as we allow, ingest the word of God, we're pulling the threads out of that one at a time. We're we reshaping the way we live, the way we think as we ingest, as we eat the word. Now, I want you to think about this. If you're, you don't sit down and eat a steak with a spoon, nor do you eat soup with a fork, the meal dictates how you eat it. In the same way, this meal dictates how you eat the word. The word dictates how you eat it. God dictates how you eat it. It's bigger than we are. It's different than we are. And we can't just get our, just jump into it and jump out of it. It says, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary in his understanding. No one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. You try to eat this word in a different way than it's made for, and you will grow weary. You will grow tired because it's made to eat slowly. It's made to, to chew on over and over and over. And you might say to me, well, I'm not a preacher type. I don't get the Bible. Well, if it was easy to get, he wouldn't have said chew on it. If it were a milkshake, he wouldn't have said chew on it. We have to learn to enter into it and let, therefore let it enter into us slowly and, and, and seep deep within our soul and shape our lives. This is not something we can have our way. There are no prepackaged boxes or books out there that are suddenly going to give you insight into the God of heaven and earth. This is his word to you. This is his word to you and the spirit of God will show you what it means. If you allow him to. I read lots of books. But there's no book like this book. There's no truth like this truth. Let it seep into your heart. Let it seep into your heart. The third course. I call wait upon the Lord. In verse 31 it says. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. In the first line you see there, it says, but those who hope in the Lord. A lot of translations uh, translate the word hope into wait upon the Lord. And a lot of times we, we associate the word wait with passive waiting. The kind of waiting you might do when you're sitting at a, a baseball field waiting for your son to get through with practice. The kind of waiting you might do when you're sitting at home waiting for your daughter to get off the phone. 
The kind of waiting you might do when there's, you can't do anything about it. You're just sitting on your hands, waiting. I used to do this all the time with my father when he saw a friend at, the, at a store or something. I'm like, good grief, he can talk. I am bored stiff. When are we going home? And I'm like, what did you find to talk about that long? That kind of waiting, that passive sitting by doing nothing, boring kind of waiting, that's not what this is talking about. This is not passive. Nor is it active, though. This kind of waiting you can't really do anything about. You know, the active kind of waiting is where you try to persuade God to do something. Like if you pray a little bit harder, then maybe healing might come. Or a little bit longer, maybe healing might come. Or you yell a little louder like I am now at God, then maybe he'll hear you. That kind of active, and then when God doesn't do something, you're like, well, I just guess I didn't pray long enough. I guess I didn't pray hard enough. What's going on? And you get disappointed and struggle. It's really between the active and passive, something in the middle. I only know one way to illustrate this. There's my wife's favorite book, and it has come out as a movie. It's called The Notebook. Now, for those of you who are married or dating and you, men, and you want to score a few points, take her to your, your significant other to this movie because it's a chick flick. Um, in this movie, uh, it, it tells about the story of a man and a woman who come from very different backgrounds and how they fall in love and the difficulties they went through in getting married. And you learn in this movie that the woman has Alzheimer's disease and she doesn't remember anything. And the husband lives in the retirement home with her in different parts because she doesn't remember who he is at all. And every day he spends time with her, getting to know her again, introducing himself as someone else, actually, so she, he can create a safe environment for her because she doesn't know who he is. And he talks to her almost all day long, telling her about their, what's going on in their lives and different things and, and spending time with her. And, and the doctors go, why do you do this to yourself? Because she doesn't know who you are. And his kids, their kids come up and say, why do you put yourself through this? Because she doesn't know who you are. And the nurses smile and understand because he has an expectant hope that if he retells the story of how they met and he reads her the story that's recorded in this notebook over and over again, she might come back. Now, he can't force her to come back. He can't yell at her, come back. He can only draw her back in. He has an expectant hope that if he enters into the rhythm of her life, that possibly her brain will enter into that rhythm and she'll recognize him. At one point of the story, she does for a few minutes come back and they share a couple of hours together. Because he had that expectant hope that if he waited and waited, he'd share that moment with her again. That's not active, nor is it passive. He didn't just sit around on his hands hoping she would come back. He did something about it, but it was an unusual doing something. Anna did something unusual that the people didn't understand. She entered into the God life, the rhythms of God's life, and entered into his passions and entered into his desires, hopefully expecting 
that God would come. Hopefully expecting that God would restore lives and change people from the inside out. And in that waiting, I believe that we have an influence upon what happens in this world. I believe that my prayers impact people's lives. I believe that my prayers, God uses those to change situations. But I also believe something else, and I know this is true. In my waiting, God changes me. When I wait on the Lord for what I'm hoping for, He changes me from the inside out. Because I'm sitting with Him. And it's as if I'm a diamond. Now diamonds in the rough, you know, are dirty and it's hard to even recognize that they are diamonds. It takes time to cut away and cut a diamond to reflect light. And it requires exact measurements to reflect light perfectly. As light bounces off the the different facets and bounces back up and reflects light that is not within the diamond itself. There is no light within me. I'm only reflecting light. But God is shaping me into a diamond that reflects His light more perfectly. He's shaping you into a diamond that reflects light more perfectly. And He's shaping Woodland Hills Church into a pyramid of diamonds that is con- where we are connected to one another, where we, reflect, where we reflect light to this world. And it is exponentially reflected through the power of us coming together in being a body as we wait on the Lord together. For what are you waiting this morning? For what are you waiting? Are you waiting for a son to return home? Are you waiting for a marriage to be restored or are you waiting to get married? Are you waiting for a child because you can't have one? Are you waiting for people to see you as a different person because the life you led before isn't what you're proud of? Are you waiting for freedom for physical pain? Are you waiting for a job that you actually like? Are you waiting for emotional restoration because you're in a place in your heart and your emotions that is hurtful? For what are you waiting? For what are you waiting this morning? We're going to spend a couple of minutes here. If you want to stand, you can stand. If you want to kneel where you are, you can kneel. If you want to come up here at the front and kneel, we're going to spend a few minutes here and just wait upon the Lord. I want to allow you time, allow you a little space just to sit with Jesus for a couple of minutes and say, and express your heart and wait upon him. Those of you who want to stand in the room, go ahead and do that now. We'll enter into this waiting together.
Oh God, you are the faithful God who fulfills your promises. Forever and ever, you remain true. Even when we're faithless, you remain faithful. God, and I pray that you would give us hearts that expect you to come. Where we are hopefully expecting your deliverance, your coming, in your timing. Let us enter into the rhythms of your life and the way you operate and give you control because you already have it. Make us a people that, of prayers who hopefully expect waiting upon you in Jesus' name, amen. For those of you who want to remain in the room and just wait up on the Lord, you feel free to come forward or sit in your chair and do so. I just want to bless you and say, God, his hand is upon this place and his hand is upon your life. And let him bless you as you go forward in Jesus' name, amen.